0: last week we, we, we looked at the law and um, there are covenants that God gave in scripture and these covenants, that's what the law is about. The law is, a, is the Mosaic covenant. Uh, God made, made multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Five dominant ones. He made one with Noah, uh, made one with, with Abraham, then made one with Moses, uh, made one with David, And then Jeremiah talks about a coming day when a new covenant will come. And that's the one Jesus introduced at the Last Supper. This is a new covenant in my blood. And so we're going to talk about the last week was the law. This week it's the the covenant of belief and the covenant of faith, which I can tell you is a much more exciting covenant than the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law. So just reminds what a covenant is. A covenant's where, where two or more parties come together, and they come together... And they make a contract. That's what a covenant is, a contract. Do we have that slide? And so this contract is, uh, they're, they're going to agree on promises, stipulations, privileges, responsibilities, all that comes involved in a, in a covenant. And it's legal and it's binding. And so God made those kind of covenants. But we kind of get infatuated and fixed on the Mosaic Covenant. And it was very important because when Jesus came, uh, they'd been walking in that covenant for over a 1,000 years, probably somewhere around 1,200 years. So it was pretty deeply rooted in them, this Mosaic covenant that God gave. I just want you to know that God gave that. You know, I'm not picking on it. God gave it. Um, and so we looked at the old covenant. Just a quick reminder. I don't want to re-preach the message, but a quick reminder. The, the law came to show us how sinful we were. You might have thought you were doing pretty good, but when you got the laws, there's actually 613 of them when it was all said and done. And there are also things that, you know, man made up that they call the tradition of the elders, so it got pretty intense. And um, when you saw this list, like you might have thought you were really doing good until you saw the list. Then you went, oh, my goodness. So the law came so that sin might increase. And also the law did something else, according to Paul, is that when the law came, it worked all manner of sinfulness in us. We didn't even want to do that until we read we couldn't and read we shouldn't. You you know that. Uh, I, I discovered, you know, with kids sometimes, like my kids used to come and say, we're going to stay up all night. Well, I'm not going to argue with you if I say, you're not going to stay up all night, you'll do your darndest to stay up all night. So I'd say, go for it. Well, they'd all be asleep by nine o'clock. So, you know, just save the fight. And, but the law comes and makes us want to say, I got to do this. I have to do this. And so it increased our sinfulness. And so we found out how utterly sinful we were. And that we were unable to keep the law. We were unable to follow the rules. And so then, it was designed to exasperate us, where we would come to a place where we say, like Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this, this body of death? And then he said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's where my deliverance comes. And so we should get exasperated and say, I need a savior. I can't do this. Somebody's going to have to save me from my sins. And so Jesus was the one who did that. And so we, we figured out that trying to do the law is an act of futility. We're not going to get it done. It, it, the kingdom never really works outside in. God's always an inside man. He's always working from the inside out. So he says, Jeremiah said, there's coming a day when I'm going to write the law on their hearts and on their minds because we're much more able to do it from the inside out than from the outside in. And it's still a challenge if we'll be honest with one another, even as a believer full of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the inside job to still yield our flesh to obeying the word of God. So when we, when we look at the, at the old covenant, we, we see that no one, no one, I think it's Romans 3.20, no one, will be justified by the law. No one. No one will be justified by the law in God's sight. don't have a slide for it, but I think it's Romans 4.15. It says that the law uh, brought wrath. It brought wrath to us. Well, Darlene showed me something a, a month or so ago, and, and when I saw it, I thought, you know, this is, when I saw it the first time, I said, here is the making of a little Pharisee. It's a, a little video clip that I want you to see uh, about somebody who's seen all the wrongdoing, everything that's wrong, and pointing it out and calling it out. And you might have one of those in your life. Uh, don't nudge them right now if they're sitting beside you. Who wants to spot out everything that you're doing wrong. Well, this little person's got a down pat. So let's watch the uh, what I titled The Making of a Little Pharisee here. Papa, do not listen. Well, I could have told you that. He acts like a little child. I could have told you that, too. She looks... He but acts, Papa has worked. He acts like a little baby Papa girl. Papa has worked hard. With him. I know, he looks like a, he acts like a little baby girl. he went out there in that cornfield and he broke corn for all them women. Yes, he had them right and out he, there with him. He'd have broke right on it, look, on it, on it. He would what? have never stopped. You know what? But, he don't ever listen. Well, sometimes yes. he don't never listen to me. He don't never clean his plate. He don't never shut his door. He don't never make his bed. He don't never clean the dishes. He don't never put his chair under. He don't never clean his toothpicks up. He don't ne- never uh, and, and don't never pray. He don't. Oh ne- yes, he does. And, uh, he don't never put his hands like this. He does this. And he don't even, and he don't even throw his pigs away, he'll just throws them on the floor. <laughs> oh, I think I'm having a nervous fire down. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm not sure what a nervous fire down is, but she's about to have one. Uh I thought, there's somebody who knows every rule, every one that's being broken. But we have something better than the law. We have something called the covenant of belief and faith. And it was a covenant made before the law that God gave uh, to Abraham. And the scriptures tell us that, that Abraham believed God, Romans 4, 3. Abraham, Abraham believed God. And when he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, it was put on his account as righteousness because of his faith, Romans 4.3. Now, if we're going to get excited about an Old Testament covenant, then I want to encourage us to get excited about the one that God made with Abraham. He believed God, and God put to his account righteousness. That's a great covenant. It must have been the covenant Jesus was excited about, too, because Jesus feeds 5,000 people, they get a great fish and chips meal, And the next day, they are looking for Jesus, and they find out he's gone. And so they start working around, looking around, going to find Jesus. They find out he's went to Capernaum. And so they go to Capernaum because they want to see Jesus. And when they show up, Jesus says to them, I don't think you're here because the miracles and the signs you saw or the words I spoke. I believe you're here because you got your bellies filled with the loaves and the fish. And he said, don't work for food that perishes but work for things that give you eternal life or last forever. And then they asked the question, which we've talked about before. They said, what work, what must we do to do the work God requires? So they're saying, hey, that's a good thing. Let's work for something eternal. What must we do to do the work that God requires? We don't have a slide for it, but Jesus said this. He said, here's the work God requires. To believe in the one he has sent. There's your work. There's your job. To believe in the one he has sent. For those of you who like to take notes, that's in, in John 6, 28 and 29. Believe in the one he has sent. And then we see this, this covenant that Jesus is going to move us into. And by the way, there's, there's some learning here and some teaching, but I also want you to see the application for how this works in our lives. What's this mean for us as believers? How can we activate this in our lives? In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, uh, Paul's talking about communion and he's, if you want to reference that to the, where it actually happened, that's in Luke 22, 20, and 21. It says, in the same way, after supper, he'd broken the bread, and in the same way he broke the bread, after supper, he took the cup, saying, now, now listen to what he says. This cup is the, what's the next two words? New covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, take this communion, whenever you drink it, Do it in remembrance of me. We're going to look at some things in Hebrews that helps unfold this. Uh, It's it's actually a mystery who wrote Hebrews. A lot of people might say Paul, and that's a good guess because he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, and he definitely was a Hebrew. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews absolutely understood Hebrew worship. They understood the Jewish law. They understood Jewish customs. They understood Jewish feasts and festivals and Sabbath days. They understood the priesthood. They understood how the tabernacle worked. They understood all that. So here wrote Hebrews is really versed in this. And the goal of Hebrews, if you read this fascinating book, is to teach these Jewish people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one you've been waiting for. And so he's got a lot of analogies with the priesthood and with the, the Mosaic covenant and that form of worship with that covenant. And he says here in Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, but now Jesus, our high priest has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates or manages for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Now, I want you to think about this. Which would you rather have? 613 laws that you had to obey to be right with God, and if you broke one of them, you're you're a lawbreaker of all of them. Or would you rather have faith in Jesus. (laughs) Absolutely. That would give you salvation and give you righteousness. So this uh, it's a far better covenant with God based on better promises. This is what the Bible's teaching. This isn't something I made up. This is what the Bible's teaching. For if the first covenant had been faultless, if the first covenant had been fine, if there was nothing wrong with the first covenant, there'd be no need for a second one. Now we say this around, I imagine it's all over the world, it's said like this, if it ain't broke... Don't fix it. Apparently, something was broke that wouldn't do the job of the first covenant, the mosaic covenant, and the covenant of the law. And again, God created it, but God says, I got something new and something better. And it says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to what? To replace it. Not to come along beside it, not to mingle with it, but to replace it. Hebrews 8.13, by calling this covenant new, Jesus made the first one what? Obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Hebrews 10, 9 and 10. The backstory on this is that Jesus says earlier in this this chapter in Hebrews, uh, the blood of bulls and goats you didn't desire. That, That never satisfied you. It might have appeased you, but it didn't ultimately please you. So he said, I'm not bringing, as this new high priest, I'm not bringing the blood of bulls and goats, but a body you have prepared for me. So let's read on knowing that, a body you've prepared for me. And Jesus said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Are we getting a point here? He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for everyone and once for all time. He's not going to the cross again. You know, He, he isn't like, oh, I forgot this group of people, so now I need to go do that again. Once for all, all people, all time done through the, the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. There was going to be blood. God isn't flesh and blood. But God wrapped himself in a human body and died for us. So the book of Hebrews is a treasure trove, a gold mine, a beautiful truce of the work of Jesus and our amazing salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 10, 16 through 18, it says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put laws in their hearts, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, pay attention, are you with me? Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. We've all sinned. We've all done lawless things. We've all done shameful things. We would all, we've all done things that if, if we broadcasted on the screen today are secret things, we'd be mortified. We'd run out of the room. Guess what? Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. For where these have been, what? Forgiven. Forgiven. Your sins and lawless acts have been forgiven. They're not going to be remembered anymore. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, God Almighty has forgiven us of all of our sins and all of our lawless acts. He's forgiven them and he's remembered them no more. So I want to ask a question. It's not a trick question, just think about it in your, in, your, in your head. If God has forgiven you, can he do a better job at that? I mean, do we think he didn't do it really well? Was his forgiveness good enough? The answer is Yes. If he's not remembering it, could he not remember it better? No, he's not remembered it. Darlene told me something last night we were talking. She told me uh, about a a visit we had from someone. I said, I totally forgot that. I, I would not have even remembered that if you hadn't reminded me of it. That was gone out of my brain until you reminded me of it. So I'm thinking to myself, the sins and lawless acts I've committed that God has forgiven and has forgotten not because he's got a bad memory. He chooses to forget. I don't want to remind him of him. I don't want to go to him and say, oh, man, I'm so sorry for what I did even yesterday or this morning or 10 years ago. I don't, I don't want to remind him. Of, I don't want to remind myself of it. God has forgiven. God has cleansed. The Bible says that he even cleanses us from a guilty conscience in the book of Hebrews and washes our body with pure water. And so I'm going to put it where God says is forgotten and forgiven. Forgotten and forgiven. You sit where you're at right now. Because if we kept on going in Hebrews, uh, which we're not going to cover this today. Well, I guess we are because I'm going to cover it right now. Uh, The Bible says that when Jesus finished what he did for us, he made us perfect forever. He said he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, this is an excuse to live however I want. I've been made perfect forever, now I need to live that holiness out of my life. I've been made perfect forever, not so I can sin, but so I can live a holy life. So God's made us perfect forever. This can seem arrogant, but it's not. It's, it's actually just worship. You and I are here. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are as pure and holy as you're ever going to be right now. Now, I want, I want, I, if you're like me, you think logically and you like things to fit mentally, You say, well, hold it. Well, I can sure do a lot better. I I get that, but I want to ask this question. Can Jesus do any better? He's the one that paid for your sins. He's the one that gave his life for you. Was it not good enough? Was it pretty good, but not really good enough? He says he's made us perfect forever. Well, there's something that people do when they feel guilty for sinning. And even if they're not a Christian, they'll often do this. They may not call it sinning, but they know they've done wrong. It's something called, it's the big word for is penitence. Penitence is this action that you're going to do to show people your feeling and your understanding of the remorse and sorrow you have for doing wrong. And so, penitence is what we decide to do. We, we say to ourselves, because we, we balance everything out, we say, okay, this sin I committed was just a little one, but I don't want to be light on sin, and I don't want to be light on sin either. I don't want to be easy on sin, so I'm going to this one wasn't a real big one. So I'm going to be miserable for two days. I'm going to mope. I'm going to make sure I don't have any fun. I'm going to make sure that I'm, you know, people look at me. They're going to ask me, well, what's wrong with you, brother? I mean, how are you doing? And I may slump over a little bit. and You know, just I just got to do this for a couple days because, I mean, I sinned. and I don't want to be light on sin. So then after you get through a couple days, okay, I, I want to say this to you. Where well, your sins and lawless acts have been forgiven and forgotten, there is no more sacrifice for sin. You're my puny little sacrifice of slumping my shoulders over and being miserable, making sure I don't have any fun for a day. Somebody offers me my favorite food, but I can't eat that because I'm not worthy. You know, I I got to, hey, would you like to go do your favorite thing? You like to, I can't because I'm not worthy. That's pitiful. It it means nothing, nothing, except it ruins your day. But then we sin a big sin, so now we say, I got to really pay for this one. So I got to really pay for it. I'm going to pay for it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. I don't know. I'm going I'm to be miserable and sorrowful. I'm going to make sure I have no joy. I'm going to make sure I don't do anything I enjoy doing because I need to pay the price because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner and I need to pay for it. Well, let me say this where your sins and lawless acts have been forgiven and forgotten, there is no longer any sacrifice necessary. And I really want to take it a step further. I need to remind myself of this, and, and you probably need to remind of too, how demeaning to Jesus. that I know you left the glory of heaven. John chapter 1 says you, you're the word, and the word was God, and you clothed yourself in flesh. You brought down yourself to this realm. You died for me. You rose again. You, you never sinned. You gave your life for me. But I just don't think that's enough. I think that and my moping would really be the right ticket. No. So let's quit insulting Jesus. Let's know that what he did was enough. So again, I don't want to be soft on sin. I'm not here teaching that sin doesn't matter. It, it does matter. But I do want to say this. When you sin, own it. Get up, dust yourself off, head in a different direction, and don't waste 10 minutes of your time punishing yourself. Don't waste 10 minutes of your time. Don't, the devil would love that because he say, this is what Christianity is like. You know, you're, you're going to always not make it and then you're always going to have to feel miserable and you're always going to have to feel awful. No, Christianity is about what the Proverbs say, that a righteous man, a righteous man, a righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. And so you get up, you dust yourself off, you were heading this direction, you say, that's the wrong direction, I'm going to head this direction. And you head that direction, and you refocus yourself on being what God's calls to be, fully devoted followers of Jesus, but not people who are punishing ourselves for where these have been forgiven and forgotten. There is no more sacrifice for sin needed. It's not necessary, it's done. So rejoice. So I'll remind you at the end, but I want to remind you right now, quit punishing yourself. Jesus was enough. Get up, dust yourself off. Don't be light on sin or easy on sin, but head yourself back in the right direction. Because all that time you're moping and you're just wasting time. You could be moving forward with God. So. Been watching a lot of baseball lately. Don't know why I got hooked on baseball. Been watching a lot of baseball lately. Got hooked on baseball, and of course, you know my favorite team is your favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds, and so been watching them. They lost last night. Oh, and another little side note, because I know you like to hear me ramble. Um, I was thinking about this. People go to a baseball game, and they're like three and three and a half hours long, and when they go into overtime, they get excited. And last night, I was watching, and the Mets were kind of like getting some momentum going, and that crowd was going nuts. The energy in that stadium to cheer on their team was, was crazy. And when all the dust settled, they won. And I thought, now let's compare that to church. We're going a little long today, aren't we? But baseball, oh man, we're in extra innings. This is exciting. We were a little noisy today, weren't we? Well, you ought to—you ought to saw that. I mean, I'm talking the state. You know, you've been to sporting events. The stadium went nuts, cheering their team on. We got a great team. We—we're on Jesus' team. We, hey, looks like we're going to lose. We just make a bunch of noise. We just keep going. We keep cheering it on. We got a great cloud of witnesses. They're even cheering us on, saying, "Let's go! Let's go! Let's go!" We're going to win this thing. I'll tell you one thing. I really love about God, uh, too, is he says this it's my field, my bat, my ball. We're going to play till I win. I like that about him. I like that about him. If you're ever a little kid and somebody brought the bat and ball and they didn't like how the game was going, they might take their bat and ball and leave. And you're like, thanks a lot, man. We're stuck here, but but it's God's bat, God's ball, God's stadium, and we're going to keep playing till we win. So might as well just cheer on, get excited, and go forward. So all that said, to say this, these verses are the Grand Slam home run. Now, baseball's America's pastime, but just in case you've never seen baseball, if somebody's on first base, second base, and third base, and somebody gets up and hits a home run, that's called a Grand Slam, and you can't score any more runs than a Grand Slam home run with one hit. It's, it's four runs scored there. This is a Grand Slam home run. Therefore, there is now, what's the next two words? Let's get, therefore, there's now what? How much? None. Are you condemning yourself? Shouldn't be. Yeah, but you don't know. You know, first of all, probably most people really do know, you know, that you're not that wonderful. But Jesus loves you anyway. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are, that's a very critical phrase, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. Because there's a lot of theories and philosophies out there in the world that aren't biblical. I hear this one all the time. We're all God's children. Not true. We're all God's creation. But according to the Gospel of John chapter 1, to as many as received him, to those who called upon his name, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. That's who the children of God are. And so there's people out there saying, you know, I think I'm going to heaven, You know, I'm a pretty good person. Compared to whom? Compared to Charles Manson? Yeah. But compared to whom? Guess what? We get to be compared to God. Oh, I'm not doing so good then. (laughs) Well, then we need some help. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, and I find people, especially in the Bible Belt, I find people who have an affection and affinity towards God, towards the Bible, towards church they remember grandma singing they remember the revival services they went to and they have an affection towards it but they're not in Christ I mean they're not hostile to the gospel in fact you start talking about gee oh yeah yeah boy whoo I remember when I was a kid oh no I haven't gone after God for 30 years but when I was a kid I have all these wonderful memories there's there's a difference between having affinity and affection a fond memory to get nostalgic about God church or revival service and being in Christ So I want to make this really clear. And I don't mean this mean, I mean this loving. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has been showing goodness and kindness to you all your life. He's kind to the unjust and the just. He's good to the wicked and the righteous. And he pours out his goodness and kindness upon you, and his goodness and kindness is designed to move you into repentance. Now that's a a churchy word that really, I want to make it, unchurchy for a moment all it literally means is to change your mind I thought God was mean I thought God was awful I thought being a Christian would be horrible but then I start examining how good he's been to me and I go wow I've changed my mind repentance literally means to think differently after after I've considered all this I now think differently I think Jesus is wonderful I want to know him I want to have a relationship with him but in this particular passage, it says, if you don't come to that conclusion, then you are storing up wrath. Why? Because you're unrepentant, your unrepentant heart. It said because you're disobedient and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself against the day of God's wrath when his, very important word, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Not his unjust judgment, not his hateful judgment, not a, no, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We know this about God if we study him. He hates to send wrath and judgment. The Bible says that he, is, he abounds in love. Uh, he, he's very patient and long-suffering. And he hates to send calamity or judgment or wrath. And it only becomes the last resort when people will not repent. Because in pure just, real justice has to have punishment of sin. Or that's not real justice. And so I don't want you to be here today saying... Oh, I'm fond of God. I want you to be fond of him. I want you to fall in love with him and be in him. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, it says. So therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because, why? Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. (laughs) For what the law was powerless to do. Now, it's not that the law wasn't good. I mean, most. Of the, I mean, when you get to the traditions of the elders and stuff like that, you can get in some silly stuff. But here it says it wasn't a problem with the law; it was a problem with us. For what the law was powerless to do, and that was weakened through our flesh, our humanity. You have surely tried to keep the rules and couldn't keep them. It was weakened through our flesh. So what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did. God did. It's not left undone. God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so, I bet this just irked the life out of the devil. It says, and so he condemned sin. He didn't condemn me and you. He condemned sin. I, I see the devil say, oh, it's going to be good, you know. God's going to get those lowly good-for-nothings. And when it all shook out, he went, oh, he didn't get them. He got sin. He dealt with sin. He dealt with the, the problem of humanity. He said he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, as a human being, Jesus fulfilled everything perfectly. He did it all perfectly in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in whom? In us. I probably said it every time I read this, probably always will. I always think the verse ought to say that was fully met in him. And it was fully met in him. But he won the victory and gave you and I the victory. The Olympics are going on right now. You know, somebody runs and gets a gold, and they come up to you and take off the gold and say it's all yours. And that's pales in comparison to what Jesus did. It would be a little better if they said, and also on the record books for all eternity, my name's going to be moved out and yours is going to be put into place, that you were the champion, you were the gold medalist. And Jesus' victory is even better than that. But it gives us an idea, the victory was won by Jesus and was imparted and given to us. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And so I really mean this, and I don't mean this combatively or being hateful, but if somebody comes to you and says, you, you, need, to, you need to obey the law and you need to do the law, will say, done it, done. Well, I don't think you Yes, I have. Yeah, I've met every requirement. Oh, so you've met every requirement. You've met every requirement. All 613, yes, I have. Well, I don't believe that. Well, read your Bible, because I'm going to take you to this. Jesus said, all the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in me. They're done. I don't live according to the flesh. I live according to the spirit. Jesus hung on the cross. You're familiar with the story. He says something that really is a great translation. It's just the word's so big, the Greek word's so big, there's so much more we can get out of it. He hung on the cross, you remember, and he said, it is finished. Do you remember that? Tetelestai is the Greek word there. Tetelestai, it is finished. That's a great translation. It means it's completed. I've finished the task, it's done. Some people say, well, it wasn't done. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. Well, it was done. He had spilled his blood, broke his body, and gave his life as a sin offering. The resurrection confirmed he was who he said he was. Because all kinds of people were saying, you know, I am this or I am that. But the word tetelestai, in the Greek, would have been what would be stamped on a bill when it was paid in full. So I don't know if they had rubber stamps back then, but if they did. When you went in and made your last payment on something, they would have grabbed a rubber stamp and stamped on tetelestai, which meant paid in full, which also meant finished, complete, done. But I like that paid in full, don't you? Paid in full, paid in full. devil comes to you and says, you got a debt. I don't have no debt no more. You don't have to remember to tell us. To. I just tell him paid in full. It's been stamped on my heart. The proof of it is I got the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's been stamped on me, paid in full. All the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met. Wow. Here's our application for the week. Rejoice in your new and superior covenant. You have a new and superior covenant, built on better promises, uh, a superior high priest. Uh, The Old Testament high priest had to keep doing doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Jesus, when he did, he sat down at the right hand of the Father and said, it's done, I've been perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Second thing, would you please quit trying to pay for your sins? And this isn't a message just for, well, that's a good message for a new Christian. No, it's a message for all of us, me, you, all of us. Would we please quit trying to pay for our sins? Where they've been forgiven and forgotten, there's no more sacrifice for sin is necessary. The third thing I want to encourage us to do is let's live with a clean conscience, free from guilt and shame. Let's, and and I, I get it. I'm, I'm a human being like you are. I know how we're wired up. It comes back to our remembrance, all we've done, and you can feel the air let out of you, and you can just go, man. <sighs> no, stop it. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Yeah, but Tracy, you know. I love the Lord, and I behaved like that yesterday. Okay, get up, dust yourself off. I'm not excusing it. I'm not telling you to repeat it. I'm just saying, get up, dust yourself off. Don't waste another moment. Go after God. Live with a clean conscience, because the Bible says he cleansed us from a guilty conscience and washed our bodies with pure water. And then the last thing is I want to encourage you, wake up fresh every day, confident in Jesus, every day, every day. You know, you say, well, I had a horrible day yesterday. Well, thank God, because I I love this phrase, this scripture. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. So you wake up, you see that sunshine start coming through the window, and you go, ah, your mercies are new every morning. I have a, I'm fresh, I'm clean, I'm confident in Christ, because he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy.